open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11 this morning. Um, As I uh, was in the midst of studying for this this chapter, I told the folks yesterday in the class that um, I opened one commentary and, and the writer said, this is, this is probably the hardest chapter in the book of Revelation to understand and interpret. It's not the best thing you want to read when you're, when you're studying. Um, uh, so I'm praying the Lord will give us grace to just see what he fully intended to communicate uh, in all the symbols and imagery that we're going to be seeing this morning. I, I really believe there is an encouraging as, as well as missional heartbeat to this passage for us this morning. Um, You know, there is a lot of judgment. There is a lot of warfare that takes place in the book of Revelation. A lot of difficult and challenging passages of scripture. But I also want you to take, just be so blessed by and take notice of how many times in the book God reminds his people of the victory that we have in Jesus. The, The victory he's already won our security in Christ, the sacrifices that we're called to make in advancing the mission of Christ. And I think you'll see those elements as we read the text this morning and why our sermon this morning is simply called Security, Sacrifice, and the Second Coming. So be, look, be thinking of those themes, those three, those three elements as we read God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. If you're visiting with us today, we we just like to remind ourselves that uh, we don't come casually to God's word. We come reverently. It's, this isn't a sports page. This isn't an academic book. This isn't a blog. Uh, this isn't a recipe. This is God loving his people and communicating his heart to his people for our godly good and the advancement of his kingdom. Could you stand with me as as we read God's word this morning? And then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city For 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom 
and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is to come soon. And then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder an earthquake, and heavy hail. Well, Heavenly Father, we look to you as we've sung already this morning. Uh, Lord, we need your grace to understand your heart and your will and your good plan for your people in bringing the gospel to every ethnicity on the face of the earth. God, would you, would you help us understand this chapter and the divine intention in giving it, both to the, the uh, first century church, as well as to a little group of people in Midland, Texas. We love you, we need you, and we ask that you'd speak to us because we do not want to stay the same. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope that maybe some of you were going, wow, we really need to pray for Pastor Billy today <laughs> as we were reading through uh, this passage. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced a time in your life where you felt really vulnerable? And guys, I'm, I'm putting you in this circle. We may not want to use that word vulnerable. I don't know. I don't know how we kind of think about that. But you were just aware of how vulnerable you were you were. 
and yet at the same time, you felt invincible. That's almost a paradox, isn't it? That you're just aware of how vulnerable you are, but felt invincible. Is that even possible? Have you ever experienced a time of great suffering, and yet you couldn't explain the security you had in your suffering? Have you ever had great pain, but had unbelievable peace? Have you ever had that? Is that even possible? Have you ever felt very fragile and yet full of faith? Wow. Maybe a time when you were very broken. And listen, I want to be sensitive. The likelihood is that some of us this morning walked in these doors feeling these very elements in regard to brokenness or pain or suffering or sorrow. A time of being very broken but very blessed. I've had two memorable experiences of that. One was when I was about eight years old. Um, I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and it was on my eight-year-old birthday. I don't know if you've been in northern New Mexico. There's a place called Bandelier, uh, just, just outside of Los Alamos, near White Rock, New Mexico. And great place to go. It's Indian ruins. And so we went there for my birthday. There was this, this beautiful stream that goes through the campground. And... Um, so we went there, and me and my buddies took our GI Joes. And we were just playing by that stream, just enjoying ourselves. What a great birthday. Uh, I was under the bridge. It was one of those old bridges just made of rock and stonework and all this kind of stuff. And I, I was under the bridge. I came up, and one of my friends was going that way, so I was going to run after him. So here I go. I'm running after him, forgetting that the bridge was there. And I smashed my knucklehead <laughs> into, that, into that bridge. And I've, I've never seen so much blood. Uh, you know what a head wound does. I mean, it, you don't have to even get that bad of a cut on your head. But I'm an eight-year-old. I see just, just blood going everywhere. It's in my eyes. It's getting in my mouth. I'm breathing in my nose. With a nose this big, you, you just do a lot with it. And, um, and I just... I'm just feeling like this is an eight-year-old about to die. <laughs> I never felt more vulnerable. I never felt more broken. I never felt more fragile. And then I felt my dad's hand. <laughs> I can't explain. I never felt more vulnerable until my dad's hand grabbed mine and led me to the car held my hand all the way to Los Alamos Hospital emergency room. Vulnerable, and yet because of my dad, invincible. Second time was on the streets, is on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. Jen and I used to live in New Orleans. Uh, we lived there for nine years. And we, we would go uh, down onto Bourbon Street occasionally, and we'd go with a team of people from our church, and we'd set up a cross about this size, uh, in the middle of Bourbon Street. Not the most popular thing to do if you've ever been on Bourbon Street before. Um, received a lot of feedback and flack and anger and a lot of swearing at us and all these kind of things. We had a dear friend, uh, Alan, I don't know if you, if you remember Richard Jones. Richard Jones was a sweet, evangelistically hearted man. and Just kind of good old country boy. And uh, 
Richard is holding the cross up. <laughs> this is, I'm getting off track a little bit with the story, but it's just so fun to tell. Um, and he's holding the cross up and some guy, some drunk guy comes up to him and says, what are you doing holding that cross up like that? And so he's really, and he was just, he was an angry drunk and just mad because, you know, I'm sure that there was conviction of his sin. And, and Richard, Richard holding the cross just looks at him and says, well, because if I let it go, it would fall down. <laughs> well, anyway, there was this precious young lady, dear friend of ours named Terry Cincamano at the time. And, and Terry, uh, she's now married and just a dear, dear friend. She was passing out tracts to people going by and some guy came by and just trashed her verbally. And I got so mad. You've heard of road rage? I had evangelism rage. I, I mean, I don't know what to even call it. This is not how, I would not recommend this as a model of evangelism. That guy just, just blistered her, swearing and ugly, and it was horrible. And he goes, he continues his way up Bourbon Street, and I follow him. We, I'm not, Jan's, Jan's kind of one to say something. I sometimes will say, no, I think I'd rather live then, um, you know, I just was so mad. I'm just going after that guy. And I catch up with him, and I tap him on the shoulder, and he looks at me with this anger. And I was just starting to say, hey, you didn't need to tell that girl those things. She was here because she cares for you. She was here to tell you Jesus loves you. And that guy says, it's a true story. I kid you not. He looks at me, and he says, I've killed a man. Well, it's nice to meet you, too. I, you know, <laughs> how to win friends and influence enemies, right? I mean, I'm, and so I'm, I'm kind of freaking out, feeling very vulnerable. <laughs> I didn't bring my vest. I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just he, I killed a man. And if you tell me Christ loves me again, I'll kill you. I gulped, I prayed a quiet prayer, and I just said, dear Lord, please help me. And I felt so vulnerable and so invincible. I was scared, but I had security. And I looked him in the eye, and I said, Jesus loves you. I've never seen anything like it. The guy falls on my neck, weeping. And we had a great conversation about the gospel. And he prayed to receive Christ that night. Fragile and faith-filled, broken but blessed, scared but secure. I think these things really describe what we're going to learn in our text this morning. God wants to strengthen your security in Christ this morning. He wants to do that. But, but I'm going to ask you, why does he want to do it? And listen I, listen, I know what it is to be brokenhearted. I know what it is to feel very insecure. I regularly, I regularly have to go down that bad road. And I, the, the Lord's training me how to walk it out and not go down those roads. But, but what is the goal of security? I, and this is an important question to ask you in, in our comfort-mad society that we live in. 
What's the goal of God giving you security? Is it just to make you feel better? Just to give you a better sense of self-worth or, or, or have a happier day? It's not. The goal of God giving you great security is so that you can make great sacrifices for the Lord. That's the goal. That's the goal. We are called to be secure in Christ's salvation so that we can be confident in making sacrifices for Christ's mission. That's why the main point of our text today is this. God promises his people great security in Christ so that we can make great sacrifices for Christ until he comes again. Let's see if that's what the text is telling us. So you, 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 let's, let's go to the text and see if, if that's what this is saying. First point this morning is our great security in Christ's salvation. And we're just, this is just chapter 11, verse 1. So God uses a ton of Old Testament references in this chapter, just like he's been doing in the rest of the book. And he's using Old Testament references and imagery to show John and to show us how secure we are in Christ's salvation. Uh, it's, it, this passage is pointing back to the book of Ezekiel, and it's chapter 40 through 48. So you really have to kind of take that whole journey to get your arms around what, John, what God is showing John, what Jesus is showing John. Uh, God was giving Ezekiel a vision of, of a temple and the experiences, and, and it, it, the experiences he had in the temple being carefully measured, um, both inside and outside, as if to communicate. Why would he measure the temple? Why would he be telling Ezekiel about the measurements of a temple? Well, it's because it was to communicate to all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus that there's plenty of room here for you. There's plenty of room here for sinners to find salvation and safety in God. And he experiences God's glory filling the temple. And the ultimate conclusion, you get to chapter 48, and the ultimate conclusion is, is that the Lord is here. That's just what the, literally the text says. The Lord is here. Oh, the Lord is here. I hope, I hope your, your hearts have already sensed that this morning. The Lord is here. The Lord is here. And so in verse 1, God, Christ is actually calling John to measure a temple and the altar and the worshipers within it. So what kind of temple is God showing John? There's a lot of, oh, you guys, there are so many different angles and thoughts about this, this chapter. Uh, I don't have time to go into all those different angles. You can, you can do your own research on that. But we know that God used the temple of the Old Testament to point us to a greater temple, didn't he? That Old Testament temple was beautiful, but it was only to point to a more beautiful temple. And his name is Jesus Christ. Christ was the greater temple. Christ is the perfect and only meeting place for God and man to have a reconciled relationship and eternal fellowship through the shedding of his blood. 
So that you think of a temple, it's a meeting place, isn't it? But we can't. There's no way we could go into the temple of God with how holy he is and how sinful we are. We needed someone to be an intermediary. We needed someone to stand between God and stand between us and mediate for us. And he did that. Jesus did that through the shedding of his blood, paying the price for our sins, so that we could be one with God, that we could meet God before God with great joy and no longer being afraid of judgment because of what Jesus has done. That Jesus is a great temple, isn't he? He's a great temple. He's the only place you can meet with God. If you're not here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're not going to meet with God by doing good works. You could do the most perfect work possible, but the motivations of your heart, none of our hearts are pure. We would do the work, we could do the work perfectly, but our motivations would still be stained. Oh, there's only one place to meet with God, and that is through Jesus, the living temple. So, so what, we're, what we're learning here is as John is measuring this temple, this picture of Jesus, did you notice it also said he's measuring the worshipers? He's, he's, he's just looking and essentially it's one of those things that say there's plenty of room here for you. There's plenty of room here in Christ before God for you. And he's looking at all the people that are in this temple. And now in this temple, it's not like in the Old Testament. In this inner, in this inner court of the temple, there's both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. They have become one in Christ. And it's, it's just exciting news. And what John is noticing is how secure the believers are. In this holy place. How secure the believers are in Jesus himself. And then there's one other dimension that we know about the temple from the New Testament. We know that since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, when when the New Testament refers, when the New Testament would refer to the temple after the destruction of the physical temple in Jerusalem, the New Testament, as far as I know, uses the word temple in one way, and that's to refer to who? Not just Jesus, but who? Us. The living stones held together that make up the temple of the Holy Spirit. Believing Jews and Gentiles who through their common union with Christ are built up into this temple. And the Bible says God dwells there. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that we are to know that we are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in this corporate temple. It's not just a little personal temple. I guess as, as an individual, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. But more profoundly to the witness we have in the world, it's us fitted and joined together in which the world sees that God loves us and that we love each other as witnesses of his love. Revelation 3, we learned a little bit of that in the letter to the Philadelphians. He, he says, you are a pillar in the temple of my God. So John measures the temple and its worshipers. He sees how secure they are and how safe they are in Christ and how secure and empowered they are because Christ is in them. I mean, what a picture, you guys. We're secure in him and he indwells us. So let's boldly go where no man has gone before. Let's bring the gospel to all peoples. I just, I just feel like that we need to get this, this 
in praying for you to this morning, it was, oh God, please give Christ-centered security to every heart in this room, please. How does that come? It comes by his word. Um, so look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and let's, I put it in bold, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear to him in glory. I used to use this verse and to teach my sons the security they have as, as a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and kids, if you want to do this, it's kind of just a neat little exercise. It's not, and even the adult kids in the room, right? Uh, I would say this, this, would be, this would be you. Your thumb is you. And, and at this point, you are not a follower of Jesus, but you put your faith in Christ and you find yourself in Christ totally secure. But the scripture goes beyond. It doesn't say your life is just hidden in Christ. It says in Christ and in God. Oh, how secure we are in the saving grace and the blood that Jesus, Jesus shed for our sins. Let's keep reading about this security. First Peter 3, 1 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that, listen to these words, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, and who by God's power right now are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through its, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. What great security. Keep going yet down into Romans chapter 8, uh, chapter verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Almost when I read that, I almost want to go, no one! I just, I just want to respond to it. No one shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, here's the reality, guys, for your sakes. Remember these themes, right? Vulnerability and invincibility, brokenness and blessedness, fragile but faith-filled, scared or suffering and yet totally secure. Well, here, here's the world we're living in. For you, your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we say, Amen. Wow. It's possible to suffer and be completely secure, isn't it? What's the purpose of that, though? God protects our salvation, one, so that we won't fall away in persecution. That's one, I think that's just so important to understand. This is a security that is mission-minded. Who, who in, in this room would ever dare to think you could keep yourself saved? If you can, I'd love to talk to you afterwards because 
you probably need to, I need to resign and you need to come, preach. <laughs> None of us can keep ourselves safe. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. How many of your wandering thoughts are rebellious thoughts? They're aimless thoughts. They're looking for security in someone else other than Jesus. Which, guys, I think that's a point for us. If you're struggling to find security in Christ, the likelihood is this. It's not a deficiency in Jesus. It's that you've been looking for security in something else. And that's why you're not experiencing your security in Christ. You might be looking for your security in your health. And, and, and you're just so scared of what the doctor is going to say because my security is in my health. It might be your accomplishments. It might be, it might be being liked and accepted by people. There's so many ways that we can find, try to find security. But that, that, even if we feel it for a moment, is that security ever going to help you when you're scared? Is that anything less than Christ is your security? It's going to crumble and it's all actually going to make you suffer more and it's going to make you more fearful and more frightened and less faith filled. So God protects our salvation so that we don't fall away in persecution. And why does He give us such great security in Christ? So that we can make sacrifices for Christ. So that we can lay our lives down and take up our cross and deny ourselves. Please, please don't be. We, 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 we are immersed in the United States in this comfort driven mindset. And it's infiltrated the church to think that the, the biggest thing that God owes us is a life of peace and safety and comfort. Look at the cross where our Savior hung. We'll get into more of that as we go. He gives us great security in Christ so that we can make great sacrifices for Christ. Here's where I think the chapter headings don't serve us well because I'm going to guess that most of us, we we enjoy Romans 8. It's like cool water on a hot day, right? But you're you're supposed to go into Romans 9. I put it there in your notes for you. Look at the sacrifice that this great security puts in Paul's heart. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsman, according to the flesh. Paul is brokenhearted because he has got Jewish family, Jewish friends that are not accepting Christ as the Messiah. And it is breaking his heart. And he has found so much security in Christ that essentially, do you see what he's essentially saying? Lord, I know that that I could never pay this price. Only Jesus could. But look how Jesus is forming his heart in, in Paul. Paul says, if it could help them to come to know Jesus, send me to hell. Send me to hell. I'd be willing to be cut off from Christ. I'd be willing to pay the highest price if they could know Christ. If they could know Christ. Guys, that is the purpose of Christian security. It's to embolden us, to give us tender hearts, but spines like steel in finishing the mission that Christ began. 
We go into the second point, our sacrifices. So this leads us into this, this, uh, this pretty tough sledding, wasn't it? In verses uh, 2 through 10, our sacrifices in proclaiming Christ's gospel. Verse 2, God promises to protect the security of our salvation, but he does not promise to protect us from suffering and sacrifice and persecution. So he brings us to the outer court of the temple. If you remember your temple uh, somewhat, you remember the Old Testament temple, there was something called the court of the Gentiles. And that was, that was this, this, this Old Testament imagery that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but it would one day go to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles would be in included in the invitation of Christ for salvation. So it's, it's as far as the Gentiles could go, they couldn't go as far into the temple grounds as the Jews could go, but it was a place that reminded the temples that God knew of them, that God loved them, that there was a place for them. But now Christ has come. Remember, Christ is the temple. Christ has come and he shed his blood for all those who would trust in him as Lord and Savior, both believing Jews and, and believers from every other ethnicity. They're already in Christ. So all of that population is already in the temple. There's no more need for a court of the Gentiles. For, for, for them to come to worship. So now the imagery changes. So now this court of the Gentiles, look at the imagery. It, it, the court of the giant Gentiles is not seen as a place for the nations to worship, but it's filled with the nations coming to persecute the church. Psalm 2 should, would, would come to probably uh, somebody, especially uh, uh, somebody like John, Psalm 2, would probably come to their mind about the nations are raging against the Lord and his anointed. And that's what they are. They're, they're, this temple is being surrounded by raging nations. They're raging against God, raging against God's people. The kings of the earth are conspiring against them. So here's, in this amazing picture, believers' great security in Christ's salvation, even though they're surrounded by a world of persecution. And that threat of persecution, it says, will last for 42 months or three and a half years. The cross-reference to that comes from Daniel. Again, that's why we studied Daniel before we studied Revelation. In Daniel 7.25, there's a prophecy of a future persecution of God's people. And using the phrase that this persecute, using that phrase, the persecution, it says in the text, will seek to wear out and destroy God's people and that they shall be given into the persecutor's hands. And this is the phrasing, for a time, times, and half a time. So that was shorthand for saying one year plus two years plus a half a year. You could also probably understand it by saying, it's gonna, it's, 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 it, at one, it's bad. Two is double bad. But then by God's mercy... It doesn't go to four. It doesn't go one, two, four. It goes one, two, one half. It's three and a half years, but it's God intervening and not allowing evil to just rule indiscriminately or, or longer than, than God's purposes for it uh, to, to bring people to himself. So you, you're seeing, so here's, let's kind of unpack this number a little bit more. Revelation 13, 5 You'll, we'll see that in a couple of weeks. We're told that the beast exercises authority for 42 months. So this keeps coming out. 
Uh, we've already seen foreshadowings of persecution uh, using these sorts of time frames. Again, back to Daniel, he prophesies about Antiochus Epiphanes and his persecution of Israel and, and of Jerusalem. And for about three and a half years, when, Ro when Rome persecuted Israel and destroyed the temple in 70 AD, that was about three and a half years. Moses led Israel in their wilderness wanderings. There was, there was a series of 42 encampments during their time of persecution and yet God protecting them. So, so not to see this, this, there's a theme. The Bible just uses repetition to communicate a theme. We'll go one more because it talks about Moses and Elijah. Elijah and Israel were being persecuted by Ahab and Jezebel for how long? Three and a half years. But it was a time of, of vulnerability and yet great invincibility. A time of, of suffering and yet great security. God will protect his people in terms of your soul. In terms of your heart that follows after him. But that doesn't mean that you're going to have a safe life. This time frame came to be understood in scriptures as God keeping us in our suffering. It, it could be a reference to a time period just prior to Christ's second coming. That's the way a lot of people understand it. And that, that I think it, there could be some of that in this. But I think that it's also symbolic for the security that a Christian has in Christ's salvation, even though we face persecution the entire time between Christ's ascension into heaven and his second coming from heaven. This was communicated, because remember, this text had to communicate comfort to the first century church. So it couldn't have just been, oh, well, well I'm so glad those folks living in that last three and a half years have this security. No, no, it's, it's, it's every believer has this security so that we can make great sacrifices for him. In the face of it all, not cowering back from it all. Not so many times the world has called the church cowards' castles. No, it's not. We have great security to advance his kingdom purposes in the earth. So how should we respond to this persecution? Well, verse 3 tells us. It speaks of two witnesses who prophesied to the unbelieving world for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. We experience great security in Christ's salvation so that we can make great sacrifices for him. And we're going to see that, aren't we? Two witnesses seem to be modeled after Moses and Elijah and how God used them to prophesy of the judgment that would come from God. For all who don't repent uh, and trust him for salvation. That was part of both Moses' and Elijah's ministry. Um, so Moses with the plagues and Elijah with the, the shutting up of the heavens. Does this mean that Moses and Elijah came back to earth for this? Some people think so. I don't think so. I think they represent some of the ministry qualities of Moses and Elijah. But I, I don't think it means that. I think these two witnesses um, are are the believers that Christ saves and commissions between his first and second coming. I think these witnesses are us. You've heard of toys are us. We are witnesses are us. I think that we are the witnesses. That's what breaks my heart. So many times I think people read the book of Revelation and it just always seems like it's always at arm's length for them. It's always about somebody back then or it's always about somebody out there. It's for you. God wants to pastor your heart with this book. This book is for you. I think we're the witnesses. Now, for the younger ones among us, you might be going, okay, this sort of sounds cool. 
when do I get to start breathing out fire? <laughs> if you've watched, oh, if you've watched some of the old movies about the Second Coming, you actually see depictions of these two witnesses. <laughs> fire! It's coming out of their mouths. Oh my goodness! I, I don't think so. I don't think so. These two witnesses are. The, the two witnesses throughout Old Testament history, you needed two witnesses in order to have a valid testimony of truthfulness. So again, the, the, the first century church would not have been reading the book like we are. That's why we have to work really hard to go back and understand what it meant. I used this phrase yesterday. Precious ones, it cannot mean to us today what it did not mean to that first century church. It cannot that's why we have to work hard to know what it meant to them. Uh, so that two witnesses was a valid testimony in a court of law to, to testify of truthfulness. In, uh, chapter 11, verse 7, when the witnesses have finished their testimony, we see that the beast comes out of the abyss and attacks them and kills them. Chapter 13, verse 7, here's the beast was given power to make war against the saints. So let's do a little bit of, of cross-referencing in Revelation. So in, in verse 7, it speaks of the witnesses that I believe are us. But then in chapter 13, 7, it kind of eliminates even any question because the beast is coming to make war against the saints, i.e. the saints and the witnesses are the same people described in two different ways. We'll get more into the beast next week. <laughs> That's, that sounds so wrong. We're going to really get into the beast next week. We're going to learn about the beast next week in chapter 12 where we, he starts getting unpacked by scripture, but... But, you, but for now, this could be powers and governments, kings inspired by Satan to attack believers. We'll learn more about that, though, as we go. These witnesses are wearing sackcloth because part of their message is repentance. I know on Mother's Day, moms, I'm sorry that I, I'm not sorry, but I'm, you know, on Mother's Day, we gave a message of repentance. Not that moms need more repentance than anyone else. It's just repentance is a key factor in our witness for Jesus. It's a key factor in sharing the gospel because you can't just add, you, you can't have some Christianized form of Hinduism or Buddhism, or Hinduism, let's stick with Hinduism. You can't just add Jesus to your already long list of idols. You can't just add Jesus to, to your leisure, your pursuit of leisure and how you use money for everything else except the kingdom of God. You can't, you can't just add Jesus as one of your little superstitious ploys. You have to turn away from all of those other idols, don't we? That's repentance. We turn away from these things, from these sins that ruled our hearts, and they couldn't satisfy our hearts anyway. We have to turn in repentance. Well, these, these two witnesses are wearing sackcloth because repentance is a part of this story. It speaks of them even further. It goes to talk about two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord. That's back to Zechariah 4, and it's a vision of a lampstand and two olive trees. In Zechariah 4, the, it, it describes Joshua, who was the high priest at the time, and Zerubbabel, who was the king at the time. Sound familiar about what our identity is as Christians? That's why I think these witnesses are the church. John is reminding believers that we are a kingdom of priests. 
The olive trees are, are providing a constant supply of oil. So get that, the, the, the pictures of this are awesome. Picture this olive tree with a spigot out of it. And, and oil is just flowing out of this olive tree so that the lampstand never runs out of light. It will always be lit. Unceasing light provided by the anointing oil of, of the olive trees. And what do we know about lampstands? We saw in Revelation 1 through 3. It's the church. And one of our favorite verses, right, is in Zechariah 4 because Joshua and Zerubbabel were kind of freaked out about what God was calling them to. And, and here was the passage that God gave them. It will not be by might, say it with me, nor by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. And that's what's being communicated here. We, we can't be afraid of this task. God will give us what we need for it. He'll fill us with his spirit to talk to the person who most intimidates us. To talk to the guy on Bourbon Street who told you he's just killed a Not just killed a guy, he's killed a guy. And he'll kill you too. Listen, those of you who know me know I'm chicken little. I can only explain that because it was not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. Verse 5 says, when the church speaks the gospel, so here's where the fire comes out and all these kind of things. Notice it's coming out of the mouth. That's the important thing. Uh, the fire is a, is a picture of judgment in Scripture. So it's speaking the greatest power known to mankind. Out of our mouths should be coming the power of the gospel. Listen, we're messing up if we think fire, literal fire coming out of our mouths. Oh, that would be cool. Guys, we get to say the gospel. We get to, we get to speak the greatest power known to mankind. And part of that good news is that you're, you're dead in your sin. And you deserve a righteous wrath from God because of it. But God is rich in mercy, right? Who because of his great love for us, hangs his son on the cross to pay the punishment price your sins deserved so that those nail-scarred hands could offer you his saving love. Oh, oh. Yet we have the word of life and it can make a dead sinner come alive. It can open blind eyes of sinners to be able to behold the beauty of Jesus. It can make hard hearts tender, repentant and desirous and affectionate toward the Lord. That's what's coming out here. It's this imagery to get our attention and then for us to attach gospel truths to it or to see the, not, not for us to attach it, for us to experience the gospel truths that are already attached to it. And so fire comes out of their mouths. There is judgment, but there is also mercy. And then in verse seven, it says, did you notice this? And when they finish their testimony, You're secure. You won't die one nanosecond before God's plan for your death comes. Persons, please remember, God, God not only ordained our birthday, God ordained your death day. No devil is bringing that to you. Cancer is not the final say. A car crash 
is not the final say. A good God who had his son crucified to provide us with what we most needed, he's the final say. He, he starts life. He ends life. And in between, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? When they finish their testimony, the beast rises from the bottomless pit. He's going to make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And yet God's in complete control this whole time, isn't he? He will ensure that people from all ethnicities are going to be saved before he comes again. And he will not allow our lives to end until we finished our mission for him. I, got, I found this, I came across this quote before, after I'd already sent the notes in to be printed. So if you want this, let me know and I'll send it to you. But this is from Spurgeon. This is our comfort. We are immortal until our work is done. Mortal still, but immortal also. Let us never fear death then, but rather rejoice at the approach of it, since it comes at our dear bridegroom's bidding. It would be easy for us to ask, where was God in the suffering? You probably heard that on 9-11. Where was God in this? Where was God in this? Where was God in that? God was present. You know how we know? Because he was present at his son's own death. He was accomplishing his purposes in our suffering. We have to banish the thought that physical safety and comfort is the pinnacle of life on earth. That God's number one priority is our physical safety. He may call us to die for the gospel, but the scripture says, and yet not a hair of your head will perish. A time that, 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 that experienced, I think this is happening through the whole inter-advent period between the first and second comings of Christ, but this is probably going to increase in intensity before Christ's second coming when demonic powers are allowed to, uh, to uh, infiltrate the world and the minds of world leaders and and there's going to be a more deception of the nations at, at the end and all to eliminate the church. And weren't these sobering passages? Verse 8, it just seems like the church has been conquered, banished. It seems like it's been banished from the earth. And it uses the word Sodom, reminding us of depravity. That's the world we're living in. Egypt and its oppression of God's people. And Jerusalem, which was really the place of the greatest persecution imaginable when Jesus died on the cross. Verse 9 says it's three and a half days. It's not three and a half years. It's a short period of time. But the nations will be raging with this intensity. And did you notice they're going to rejoice at the death of the church. The corpse of the church is going to be lying in the street. The church is despised by the world. At least that's the, way the appearances, right? Haven't we read the stories? If you, have, if you don't read missionary stories you know, periodically, please do so. It'll strengthen your heart. It's amazing how many times when, when China seems to shut in and tries to keep out 
all our efforts to know what's going on there. And it, it seems like there, like, is there even any church left in China? And yet in all that silence, when it seemed like the church was dying, news gets out that the church is increasing. People are getting saved right and left, and China can't stop it. The same is true in North Korea. The same is true in Iran. God is doing great work. In our weakness, his strength is, is perfected. And that's what's happening here. The world will celebrate the end of the church that tormented them. And don't you get that feeling now? If we start to tell people that God's good plan is, is he created a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman, not just because of gender issues, but because this is his way of wanting to describe the amazing love that God has for his people in taking two people who are so entirely different and yet making them one in him for the sake of people knowing what God's love is like. I mean, it's an amazing thing. But, I mean, if you're telling someone who's not a believer about that, I think they feel like we're tormenting them. You can't tell me that I can't be the gender of whatever I feel. And if you do, you're, you're hateful. This is hate speech. You see, well, I, the, the scriptural words are powerful. The world will celebrate the end of the church that tormented them. They, did you even see? They even say, let's, let's give gifts to each other. Ding dong, the church is dead. Wicked church, the church is dead. I mean, it's just here we, yeah, hey, let's give presents. Because the church is gone, apparently. Last point, our security is in Christ's second coming, isn't it? Not just in his first coming and the security we have in our salvation, but we see in verses 11 through 19, it's not the end, is it? The breath of life from God enters them. Remember the dry bones? I hope some of you have thought about Ezekiel 37, the dry bones being breathed upon by God. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Listen, the worst that can happen to us, if, if, if we die for our faith, it only more quickly leads us to our heavenly home, doesn't it? Is this what happens at the death of the believer? Yes. Is this what happens at the, at the final resurrection? Yes. I think it's either one. I think it can apply to us today, right where we are. Verse 13, there's a great earthquake the, 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 the described by that was in the sixth seal as well as the seventh trumpet. It's the beginning of the end. And it describes 7,000 people killed. I don't know what that was getting at. I, I, the 7,000 may be that imagery again, speaking of, of a completion, of fullness, the word number seven, that, that all people who rejected Jesus were judged. That may be what it means, but there's amazing news in this. It also says only a tenth of the city was destroyed. And the rest gave glory to God. And you know what I hope? I can't say this with certainty, but I hope and I think that this is not just speaking of, of all doom and gloom near the end. I think this is telling us there's going to be a great revival. I'm praying that it'll include lots of ethnic, unbelieving Jews who will repent and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. I'm praying that it will, so we don't even have to pray this, God's promised this, that it will include men and women and boys and girls from every ethnicity on the face of the earth. 
think we have scriptural reason to believe in a coming revival. And that just gives me hope. Because sometimes I just get a little weary in waiting for the people I love to come to know Jesus as Lord. It just gives my heart hope. I, give, I hope it gives your heart hope too. And the seventh trumpet blows. And they, we're going to talk about some of the issues about the seventh trumpet. What, we don't get what we, we did, it's like we don't get what we expected. It's not a declaration of final judgment. It's a declaration. I'm jumping up and down a lot. I'm just realizing I'm 62 years old and I'm jumping up and down. I can't help it. It's a final declaration of victory. He is king of kings and he is lord of lords. And this sound goes out through the earth. It's almost, any of you like Handel at Christmas time? Any Handel Christmas timers here? Oh, I want to sing it, but I, dad says I sound like I'm somebody stepping on a cow's udder when I sing. So I won't do that. But so think of Handel, the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You guys, I believe this or not, Alan, but Alan, I should have told you this before. When I was young, I hiked. I actually hiked once, but I, it was... <laughs> It was up near Los Alamos, and it was, I wore snowshoes. Alan, can you even imagine this? Alan is such a backpack hiker guy, and he just loves that, and I run away from it as far as I can. And it was up in Los Alamos, and we're trudging through the snow, and it was miserable. It was miserable. I can't, what is the use of this? All I see is another tree. You know, there's just nothing. What, oh, wait till you see. There's this going to be this place. When what you see is going to make you want to go on. And so, okay, I'll keep trusting. Here we go, strudging through the snow, trudging through the snow. And we get past the tree line. And those of you guys have had the experience, you know, it's like, you can be tired and exhausted. But you see the beauty of where you're going. I think that's what God is doing here in Revelation. There's still more to do. There's still more life to live. There's still more sacrifices to make. But isn't it kind that even before we get to Revelation 21 and 22, God kind of gives us past the tree line to be able to see that day when he won't just reign spiritually in the hearts of his people. He'll reign perfectly and presently in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and nothing else. Josh, get up here. <laughs> you guys can go back and look at there's, there's some other things he tosses out there that are beautiful. Um, he's reigning without a rival. The raging nations will rage no more. In fact, this is kind of... If you go back and look at Psalm 2 and how the nations rage, the Bible says God laughs at the, the futility of that. And the way I see that in this passage is God gets the last laugh. Evil will not triumph over his purposes. And it describes a temple being opened. And that temple is not a physical place. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's, it's a restoration, but I probably think it's a better version of Eden. There won't be a need of a temple there because God will be present. And that's the picture of the Ark of the Covenant. That's, that, that's this imagery of the Ark of the Covenant. God is present there. 
And God is present with us this morning. Isn't that such good news? And he's present with us as we, to give us great security in our salvation in him, but to great, give you great confidence in making great sacrifices for the gospel. Would you stand with us and let's, let's close in song and then I'll, I'll come up to dismiss.